Almighty God, we give Thee thanks for the season of Epiphany and for the unveiling and the revelation of Your gift to the world and to humanity. Open our minds and our hearts to Your Holy Scripture and let us live it out in our lives every day. And now may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in Thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. We are in the seventh chapter of St. Paul's Epistle to the Romans. And we are in the very, what Judge Clement used to refer to as the meat of the coconut. <laughs> I like to think of chapters 6, 7, and 8 as being kind of the nucleus around which all of Paul's theology revolves, and I'm by no means any kind of an authority on Paul and his writings, but this is, these three chapters are really, I think, if we had to study, if we were to study nothing else in, certainly in the epistle to the Romans, and perhaps nothing else in the New Testament outside of the gospel, if we can understand chapters 6, 7, and 8, I think we've got a really, really good grasp on the essence of, of the fundamental essence of, of Orthodox Christian theology. Remember that through chapter 6, Paul is writing about that paradox between um, being open to grace but not taking grace as license to behave any way we want to. As Paul famously put it, are we saying that we give free reign to sin so that a grace may abound? And his answer is by no means. In chapter 7, he's going to turn from the issue of grace to the issue of the law. And y'all started a little bit on the law last week in chapter 7 after Brian and I had to slip out and go vest. And um, I'm sorry to say I'm going to make you do it again. We're just going to, you know, we're going to plow that ground some more, uh, not only because I wasn't here to, to listen to it being plowed the first time, but also because I think it's really, it's really critical for us to, to get our arms around exactly what Paul is writing about, the relationship between the law and grace. So in chapter 6, Paul um, suppresses the natural human instinct to interpret grace as some sort of license to ignore the law. And in chapter 7, he, and we will, we will start it, we will not finish it today. We'll finish it next week. Um, I call this today dying to the law because, because Paul actually writes about dying to the law in, in um, chapter 7. He will grapple with this, um, this paradox that even though we are under grace and we are no longer, we are no longer um, uh, under the law, nevertheless, we still, we remain sinful human people, and how do, we, how do we square that circle? Well, chapter 8 is where he really gets to the, uh, 
the relationship and how it is through Christ and through the, the word that came up last Sunday, through being sanctified by the healing of the Holy Spirit. But that's enough of a, of a sort of a, 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 a summary of where we are and where we've been and where we're going. Um, let's look again at verses 1 through 3. Somebody would read that for us. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. It's longer than it sounds, but it's, but short, but it, it's short enough. Go ahead, Coffee. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only, so long, only as long as he lives. Thus, a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Thank you. Now this is um, probably an offensive chapter, uh, an offensive set of verses to some. But Paul is going straight to Jewish law that everybody uh, who had a Jewish background would understand immediately. The, the marriage law and the way it operated so that um, so that one would be free to remarry after the death of a spouse, and that's still in our own marriage uh, service. Uh, when a couple promises to death do us part, this goes back to the Jewish understanding of the law that not only um, that a woman has to obey as to her husband, but also the husband under the law had certain duties and responsibilities to his wife, and one was not released from that law until the death of one of the spouses, after which the, uh, the surviving spouse was free to remarry. But as Paul writes, that uh, if, if a woman uh, remarries while her uh, husband is alive, she is considered under the, under the Jewish law to be an adulteress. Remember that the church in Rome to which Paul is writing was largely Jewish. There were um, lots of churches that Paul had um, founded and addressed and visited who were largely Greek in other parts of the empire. But the Christian believers in Rome at this time were almost all converted Jews. So his particular audience would have had a particular understanding of exactly why he is offering this, um, this illustration. To use a slightly less, shall we say, dated illustration in our 21st century um, point of view, uh, I'm a lawyer, and some areas of the law um, I happen to know, and some of you who have studied the law may know also, that, they, uh, that a particular legal right will die with the individual to whom it, it, it belongs. For example... If the Birmingham News or what's left of it, AL.com or whatever, were to write an article that, um, that I consider to be defamatory uh, to me, that, that, has, that has caused, um, uh, that is not true and has caused injury to me, that's uh, libel under the law of Alabama. That's what it's called, libel. Now, if, uh, if I want to sue, uh, the Birmingham News, I have the right to sue the Birmingham News for libel. 
But if I were to suffer a fatal heart attack on the way to the courthouse to file the suit papers, then that cause of action has died with me. There are other causes of action that survive, but that cause of action dies. So in the same sense, Paul is using the law to illustrate the particular point about um, one's being in bondage to the law during one's lifetime. And he's going to take this bondage illustration, he's going to turn it around here kind of subtly. Would somebody read verses 4 through 6? Any volume mic you want to do it? Okay, go ahead. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Thank you. The new way of the Spirit rather than the old way of the written code. In other words, we live now because of grace, we live through the Holy Spirit as opposed to living through the law. Paul has a very, um, he writes it in Greek, of course, and the word for uh, Holy Spirit in Greek is pneumatos. The word for the written law, he actually uses, um, he uses a sort of a, a prosaic Greek word, grammatos. And so the sentence has really got some kind of poetry to it, pneumatos and grammatos. We live through the spirit, pneumatos. We no longer are in bondage through the law, pneumatos, the letter of the law. That's the gramma, that's letter in Greek. Um, so let's, let's see what Paul has, has done with this illustration. He started with the illustration about a, a woman whose husband has died, and then she is free to remarry another man. We might think very superficially, okay, well, if we, if we take that into the subject of the law, if I die to the law, then I'm free to, to what? Well, if the law dies, I am free to what? What Paul is doing is something about what Paul Zoll did from the, I don't know if you all remember a sermon. He, he actually used this illustration more than once. You've heard him speak of dying to the law. Um, he used to preach about dying to the law in a way that implied uh, the law is death. And his perfect favorite example was, all, it always came back to Martha Stewart. Now, Martha Stewart is not nearly the cultural phenomenon in 2015 that she was in 2001, uh, after having gone off to federal prison and then, you know, having lost part of her empire. But... In the day, Martha Stewart was the very definition of everything that was supposed to be done a certain way. And Paul Zoll's famous 
quip from the pulpit once was to read Martha Stewart's wedding book and to see all of Martha Stewart's prescriptions for how the wedding ought to be done and how the the invitations have to be engraved and how the dress has to be fashioned and how the cake has to be baked and how the the um, invitations have to go out time just perfectly and calligraphy just right. Paul said, PZ said, there was no greater illustration of dying to the law that I can imagine. Dying to the law meaning the law sets a standard which we can never meet and our attempt to meet it is nothing but frustration and death. And, you know, of course, with Martha Stewart, that I think that's very true, that Martha Stewart established a, a standard in the minds of some people that was impossible to meet. But actually, Paul is turning this around. Paul is not talking about us being killed by the law. I mean, he's a Jewish Pharisee. How could a Jewish Pharisee say a thing like that? Well, he's not. When he says, when he writes about dying to the law, see, he's turning it around a little bit. He's saying that when we are released from the bondage of the law, then we are free to live according to a different, a different standard. I think the greatest illustration that I've ever heard was in another sermon that was given by another Paul, Paul Walker, when he was one of the canons here at the Advent. You all probably remember, those of you who remember Paul Walker knew that his roots, his heart, his mind, his soul, his emotions were all wrapped up in Charlottesville, Virginia. And he's and still, yeah. He's he's back there now. He will probably never leave. Well, he's gonna be a bad guy next. Wonderful. Okay, if he's here at Lent, that will be terrific. When Paul was here as a canon, he he preached a sermon about dying to the law, and he compared it to something that happens every Fourth of July just outside of Charlottesville at Monticello, you know, Thomas Jefferson's great estate up on the hilltop from which he could look down with his telescope and watch the construction of the, what they don't call it, the campus at UVA, do they, Brian? They call it the grounds. Yes. And, and he, yes, he could see, he could see from, from Monticello, his estate, he could look in his telescope and watch the rotunda being built in the, in in the lawn, and uh, every year on the 4th of July, the Immigration and Naturalization Service holds a swearing-in ceremony for new citizens, and they take the oath of office there on the grounds at Monticello. Of course, it goes on every day all around the country, but there's something special about it happening on July 4th at Monticello. Um, you may remember that Thomas Jefferson died on July 4th at Monticello. But the more particular significance, I think, is here almost one of the first citizens of the Republic, all of these new citizens are taking the oath on the, you know, the, 
the, the day that marks the, the crowning of his entire life, the signing of the Declaration of Independence, which he wrote. And there on, his, on the grounds of his, of his estate, these new citizens are taking the oath. And what, what does the oath say? The oath says that they are swearing allegiance to the United States and they are renouncing all of their old allegiance to princes and potentates, I believe is the language in the oath. The important thing is that they are renouncing their allegiance to the old way. And by swearing allegiance to the United States, they are no longer under the law. They are no longer under the control. They no longer owe any allegiance to these princes and potentates whom once they served. And I think that that's the perfect illustration. Paul offered it as an illustration for what um, uh, St. Paul is writing here, that when we die to the law, what it really means is that this grace which has come into our lives has released us from the allegiance that we once held to sin. Because of the law, we were bound to try to keep the law, and which we'll talk about how that still is there, but because of because of the, the sacrificial act of Christ, we no longer have to keep any allegiance to sin. We are no longer bound through the law to this sin. And because we no longer owe allegiance to it, that's why in, verse, in chapter 6, Paul could write, of course we don't give free range to sin to allow grace to abound. We no longer owe any allegiance to sin. And so why would we want to, as Paul, Paul Walker's illustration, why would these new citizens want to pay homage to their old citizenship? They no longer own it. They're released from it. They've taken this new oath. And that, I think, is a really great way that Paul has turned this dying to the law into a, a liberation because the law is no longer owes, a, because the law no longer has that, that hammer over us, that sword of Damocles over our heads. We now live in a new relationship to it. And so we are free, as Paul writes, being discharged from the law, dead to that which held us, verse 6, held us captive so that we are slaves not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. We once were slaves to a written code. Now we are slaves to the Spirit through Christ. Any comment, any discussion about that? It's Brian? Uh, one thing that I like about your uh, <coughs> allusion to the Yeah. 
serve a, a God, uh, but but that God is perfect freedom. And, and so we you know, I kind of like to think that that, that that we we have a new life, we've been freed from our from our from these uh, constrictions and sinfulness of, of the uh, previous that's well put. You become subject to a whole bunch of new laws. Uh, right. Laws, the right. U.S. laws. If you right. carry that analogy, I, I guess I, I'm, since Paul, I mean, uh, you flip flop back and forth between saying the law is good and the and the law, and then we're freed from it. What was what was he addressing at the time? What's the historical reason? What problem is he trying to answer with these with this very I find very narrow line he's following you can't abandon laws right you don't become a u.s citizen and then just decide you do whatever you want to do that's right and so people are bound by something to to make society coherent and you know let me answer your question the way john stott answers the question and i can think of no better authority than John, stop. Before I do that, Coffey, did you want to well, respond the, to Mary's statement? And I've got it marked in my Holy Bible in the Old Testament that states that with the death of the chief priest, the law is changed. When Jesus died as the chief priest on the cross, the law changed. The old law went away, and the new law came into effect. And Jesus' law is one of grace and salvation. Um, that line, <clears throat> kind of to tag on to what you said, when you're talking about the law and then the spirit, I had it explained to me recently that under the old uh, sacrificial system, the Levites, Aaron, then that's when the sacrifice was made, and that was for sin. And if you equate it to the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, then that's the sacrificial system. But then if you go into the, the because Jesus was not part of that um, priesthood, he, was, he fell under the order of Melchizedek. So that was a different, different priesthood because he was Judah, whatever. Well, that is how, because this is the new priest, like you were saying, the high priest, and through that, you have the power to keep whatever the law is, because you can't keep it. You, you, it's through the power of the Holy Spirit that allows you to keep the law as he has written it. You can't do it on your own, and that's why we need to say. So a lot of times Christians come in, and they stay Aaron Christians under the sacrificial system, and they're saved. But then they don't know how to live the Christian life. And that comes through the power of the new high priest and the Holy Spirit that enables you to live the life under the law like you can't, um, I don't know, any of them don't lust. Well, only through the power of the Holy Spirit does that stop that. And in our coveting of sin, you know, whatever it might be, because the flesh is broken. So that gets into your sanctification process that you were talking about, that goes into, so they're Aaron Christians and then they're Melchizedek type Christians that allow the power of God to work through you. 
let's go back to what the question was, what particular problem was, was Paul addressing? I can think of two. One problem in probably more in the Greekified parts of the church was more of, a, of an issue. And the other problem was more in the, the Jewish Hebraic parts of the church. The Greek problem was this, what we talked about in chapter 6, should we just sin away and let grace abound? The theological word for that is antinomianism. It comes from the Greek meaning um, uh, contrary to the law or against the, not against the law so much as in opposition to the law. The antinomians, that was an early heresy, um, and it kind of came on top of a, of a Greek attitude that the things of the flesh don't really matter very much, that, that the, what the body does is kind of irrelevant. It's all about the spirit. The Greeks were very big into spirit, and the, the dichotomy between, the, between corrupt flesh and, and elevated spirit. Well, antinomianism was what Paul was addressing somewhat in chapter 6, the attitude that, you know, we'll just, you know, sins of the flesh don't matter because it's the spirit that matters, therefore grace makes everything okay. And there are certain antinomian tendencies in Christianity all through history that, you know, there's a, a feeling that the only thing that matters is love and everything else is irrelevant. Well, Paul would say that, no, there is more that's important there than just love. And that's a kind of an antinomianism. The other extreme is this, is this, um, what he, what, what Stott calls the legalist um, heresy, which was probably more in the, in the Hebrew, uh, the Hebraicized parts of the church and perhaps more in the church in Rome because of so many more Jews there. You know, the attitude that one had to be an observant, devoted Jew, had to follow all of the scribal law in order to be a proper Christian. And remember in the book of Acts, we saw that played out, this, this dispute between Paul and Peter early on, and more as it played out in the whole church about whether one had to be a proper law-keeping Jew in order to be a proper Christian. So Paul is, um, Paul is addressing both of those, and Stott, Stott's take on these three chapters is that Paul is kind of is speaking against the two extremes, antinomianism on the one hand and legalism on the other hand, and he's addressing legalism in chapter 7, but he's about to switch gears and sort of try to reassure some of his Jewish readers too. So we'll get to that in a second. And he's trying to find this comfortable, he is explaining the comfortable medium between the two extremes. That is where law and grace overlap, if you will. The Venn diagram, the part of the, uh, the, 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 part of the focus on grace and the part of the focus on law and where they overlap this comfortable medium, which John Stott refers to as law-fulfilling freedom. 
getting back to your question. Jonathan, is this too simple a thought? That part of it is motivation. When you are free of the law, you do what you do not because you think you have to, but because you really want to, and you're deep inside. I think that is the absolute perfection of the way you've expressed it, Dick, and the way that Paul is saying it as he as he works this out. And Stott was in, especially emphatic on that, that when we are under the law, when we are slaves to the law, we are doing what we ought to out of a sense of, of, of threat, of fear. Uh, we, we are such slaves to the law that, that we, we do not, we, we know that we can't keep it or we should know that we can't keep it. And um, the fact that we are unable to keep it is this, is this terrible burden. But once we are no longer slaves to the law, once we have died to the law, then we are able to keep it out of a sense, we are able to strive to keep it out of a sense of joy and gratitude, knowing the value of the gift that was given, that substitutionary atonement that was bought on the cross. I think that's exactly it, Dick. Brian? And, and I would add that what you just described uh, is, is the, the Holy Spirit enables us to do that. So it's not very striving. Well, that's right. Go back to the, the, the second half of, of verse 6. We, we are slaves not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. The Spirit allows us in a way that our individual striving under the code would not ever permit us to, to achieve. Frank? Don't correct me if I say anything out of line here, because I'm not sure. I, I promise. I'm not sure I understand all You have my word. Uh, didn't Paul Saul preach that the law is not necessarily what's written down in black and white, thou shalt not kill? But he used the analogy, remember, no time for the number of housewives and the SUVs. And, you know, as if, as in the case of if you live in Mount Brook and, and, and you know, it's expected that your wife is going to have a brand, a, a brand new SUV to drive. Yeah. Isn't that, or, or, you know, you see so many people, I, I mean, I, in the past, it had just, it's a huge deal if you live in Crestline or someplace like that to, to join one of the country clubs. Right. It's a big deal. Right. Now, isn't that the aren't, isn't that wouldn't that custom or that tradition or that expectation be considered the law? Yes. It's the tenth commandment. Well. Interesting. Interesting that that the tenth commandment should come up because it actually yeah. comes up in the next passage. Shall we segue? Go ahead, Steve. Not segue the little the little scooter with the two wheels. I mean, segue in the old. Yeah, right. Go. Christ said, you know, He didn't come to replace the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. So, as it relates to the law, our relationship is actually changed. The law is not gone; it still exists, but it's our relationship because of the Holy Spirit that's different. Kind of funny, Paul really didn't like anybody having a big car. <laughs> 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 well, John, the, the example you gave earlier of Martha Stewart, I think, is exactly uh, you know, what Frank 
of the, not only do we have the laws that God gave us, but we have these, these laws that come from this fallen world. Yes. Yeah, you have to succeed, your children have to be beautiful, you have to have the right car, mm -hmm. and, and those sorts mm -hmm. of things. And, and I think, you know, in, in a lot of ways, for, for a lot of people, those, those laws, uh, if you can call them laws, are, are, more, are more crushing and deadly than, uh, than thou shalt not kill. Yes. It's kind of like the Quite Jews, so. you know, they had so many, we talked about it just at the end, they just added laws on top of the ten. And that's kind of what you're saying, is, is, is the world evolved, it's something new is going to be out there that you got to have to alter to do. I want to start the next section, and it, we won't get all the way through it, but that's okay because it sort of introduces the rest of the the uh, chapter. And the reason I want to do it now, it's especially important because I think that Paul, in in verse seven, sort of subtly shifts gears because in chapter six and in the first part of chapter seven that we've read, he is striking at antinomianism. Um, but he also has been striking at, at overt legalism because here he's, he's written that we are now free from the law. And I'm sure that the Jewish part of him and the part of him that wants to communicate with these Jews in the church in Rome wants to make sure that they understand that he is not denigrating the law because there is still, in Christian theology, there is a critically important place for the law. Without the law, well, let's, let's see what Paul says about that. Um, verses 7 through 12. Somebody want to read that, Steve? Go ahead. What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet it had not been, yet... If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. So Paul is coming back around and reemphasizing the importance of the law. Remember, twice in chapter 6, he said, shall we sin at, at, at leisure so that more, more sin means more grace? He wrote, by no means. He starts off this passage with the same kind of construction. Should we say that the law is sin? By no means. So he's attacking, you know, here in his writing, he's attacking both extremes, antinomianism and legalism. But here he's, he's specifically attacking antinomianism by saying that the law does matter and the law is beautiful and the law should not be confused with sin. But this is a really, really, really hard passage. As the, as the apostles might have said, this is a hard saying. And it's, it's, it's worth trying to, to work out 
exactly what Paul is getting at here. He writes in the first person, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Verse 7. But sin, seizing an opportunity in the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came and sin revived, and I died. Paul is shifting from a, a, a general approach to writing in the first person. So the question is, is Paul telling us something about his own experience? Is he writing more generally about the human condition? There are some scholars who believe, who have argued, that Paul was making a specific reference to the fall of humanity in the Garden of Eden. And that this I, as Paul is writing from, is almost like writing about Adam. There are others who say that Paul was writing about the experience of the nation of Israel. And the I in this sense, is the, is the experience of Israel. And we can, if we read them through carefully and remember the history in the garden, for example, there was no sin until Adam and Eve broke the commandment. Don't eat of that fruit of that tree. And then suddenly they had knowledge of good and evil and the the situation in Eden was transformed forever. Almost the same way in Israel. Before God gave the, the law to Moses on Sinai, they were a gaggle of tribes led by a succession of patriarchs. Only when God gave the law did he define for them the standard that not only made them a nation, but also made them understand what 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 is sin and and so there are scholars who who put all of this into into allegory that Paul is writing not only for himself but also for all of humanity also for the nation of Israel as the as the pharisaic Jew that Paul was i'm going to leave that there for the week and we'll come back next sunday and we'll we'll explore it some more i will tell you that Stott, and I think Stott is pretty persuasive here, Stott concludes that Paul is writing, yes, for himself in his own experience, but in a more broad sense that when he writes I, he's really expressing what is the human condition. And interestingly, because it came up in both what Frank and, and Margaret raised, he refers to the Tenth Commandment about covetousness. So in the week to come, think about how Paul's eye here and the broad we is explained our, how it is that law made us understand sin and how Paul is drawing the distinction between law and sin. He's not saying that because the law leads to death, unless we're released from it. 
He's not saying that the law is awful and sinful. He's saying that the law is good and just. So how can he say that the law is good and just? So think about that. We'll pick it up next week and we'll wrestle with Paul's, Paul's anguish about wanting to do the right thing and not being able to. The thing that he wants to do, he can't do. The thing that he wants not to do, he does. He says, I, the, the law is beautiful, but I am carnal. I am a slave to sin. So think about that heavy thought in, in the next week. And we'll be back next week to work it all out. Thank you.